Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Live Right Press, publisher of The Red Car, the critically acclaimed new novel by Marcy Dermansky. Megan Abbott, author of You Will Know Me, calls it a wonder. Moving, mysterious, and filled with dark, sly humor, the red car rustles under your skin and stays there. By the time I reached its shimmering final pages, I wanted to go right back to the beginning and start again. And Roxane Gay, author of An Untamed State and Bad Feminist, says, quote, I've been waiting and waiting for a new book from Marcy Dermansky, and finally, that new book is here. The red car is taut and smart and strange and sweet and perfect. I want to eat this book or sew it to my skin or something. The Red Car, the new novel by Marcy Dermansky. I'm reading it right now. It's really good. Straight up. It's great. Marcy Dermansky, The Red Car, available now from Live Right Press. It's a novel. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and uh, Meredith Alling is my guest. You look at her name, and I think you want to say, uh, if you're anything like me, Meredith Alling. But I was informed shortly after her arrival here, uh, last week that her, her name is actually pronounced Alling. It's Meredith Alling. And her debut story collection is called Sing the Song. It is available from Future Tense Books. It publishes officially on November 18th, 2016. If you're listening before November 18th, 2016, and you want the book, you can pre-order it at futuretensebooks.com. If you're listening after November 18th, 2016, you can buy the book wherever books are sold in all the usual places uh, online and so on. So Sing the Song, the debut collection from Meredith Alling, uh, available from Future Tense Books up there in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I should add that uh, Meredith, uh, shortly after her, uh, her arrival, became only the second guest in the history of this program to enjoy an adult beverage during our conversation, <laughs> which uh, I know she's going to be thrilled that I mentioned. <laughs> Uh, but in her defense, I would say a couple of things. First of all, we recorded uh, our conversation late in the afternoon on a Friday. It was essentially Friday evening. It was definitely happy hour. 
And uh, that is unusual. I don't usually record at that time. So she brought me a bottle of wine. I want to uh, reiterate that uh, I encourage this as a tradition, a new tradition uh, here at the podcast where guests of the show arrive bearing a bottle of wine for me. Uh, Meredith did this, which I greatly appreciated, and then proceeded to open the bottle and drink from it. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely fine. I have no problem with that. And I should add too that, uh, you know, this wasn't, it's not like she was drinking from the bottle. We poured a glass. She had a single glass of wine, like a very responsible adult. There's nothing wrong with that. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, let's get to the show. Let's get to the conversation. We had a really good time talking. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Meredith. Here she is, folks. This is Meredith Alling, and her debut story collection is called Sing the Song. I think it's German. It's my, it's my husband's name, which I took when I married him. You don't, you don't know if he's German? You don't know if you married a German? Listen, we're all a mixed bag here. <laughs> And we look like this. Hey, you're drinking uh, white wine? Okay. You're the second person. I don't appreciate a... being called out on that. <laughs> <laughs> but go on. No, I think it's touching. I think, and it also is a Friday afternoon that we're recording this. So there seems to be something permissible about it on a Friday afternoon. Thank you. I also uh, just have very bad anxiety. Yeah. And so even though, you know, like. Talking to the microphone. Leading up to this, I, I wasn't really nervous. And then today I started like noticing my anxiety symptoms, which is often what'll happen. Do you like, medic, you medicate? I do. What do you I take? I take citalopram. Okay. It is, I take a really low dose. It's an antidepressant. Um, and I've been on SSRIs for like 10 years. For depression? For anxiety. For mostly. anxiety. Yeah. That, I thought SSRIs were for depression, but it's for both. It's for both. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, oftentimes they come together. Do they, do they work for me? They do. Yeah. And I tried to get off of them when I moved to LA in 2011 and it did not go well. I, uh, was off them for about nine months and I had tapered myself off of them, which was not a good idea. You're supposed to, you know, do it under doctor supervision, but I read about it on the internet. I didn't have insurance at the time. And so I thought I was tapering appropriately. Um, and I think I didn't because it was not good. What happened? My anxiety was so extreme. It was like, 
it was beyond. It was just like, I was freaked out all the time. I was super scared for some reason. Like I was really hyper vigilant. I like thought people were going to break into my house. It was like a mental time. Like I was like, am I having a mental break? Mm. Yeah. And I very well may have, um, been having that, but like as a result of the medication and the medication I was taking at that time was Lexapro. And supposedly that's like, a pretty hard one to get off of. I don't have any experience getting off other ones. I would kind of assume they're all the same because I mean, SSRIs did, like function all the same way. Do they mess up your neurology? I mean, do they, they mean not mess it up, but I mean, they make an imprint. Yes. But you know, for me, and this is like, initially I wanted to get off of them because I'd been on them for so long. And I was like, what would it be like to not be on them? Even right. though they were fine. Like I was doing fine on them. I was just kind of curious. And it seemed like, a good idea to try it at the time, which now looking back, I'm like, Oh, during a transition. Yeah. Good call. Like a huge, like move across the country. Um, but they do change your neurology, but for me, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say because I've been on them since I was like, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I've been on them since I was like 17. So it's a little over, uh, 10 years, but I, I don't know the difference anymore. Yeah. But that said, I don't notice, you know, people always are worried about like, oh, it's going to numb you. It's going to make you numb and you're not going to feel anything. And for me, that's not been the case. You know, that said, I've been on a really low dose for a long time. So for me, it just kind of like takes the edge off. Um, and I've had therapists that say sounds, that, that sounds good. Yeah. And like, I've had therapists say that my baseline, my baseline anxiety is just like really high. Do you know why you're anxious? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've been anxious for a long time. Like when I was growing up, I would come home. Cause I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm anxious. Everyone's got some anxiety, Absolutely. but you know, what is it? It's, it Cause I was, I was talking about this with my mom who doesn't sleep well. We were talking about anxiety and I was like, I think anxiety is usually, you know, when your brain's in the future, but yeah. she's also like, you know, you can be anxious about the past too, Yeah. which I guess is like what regret, you know, or. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't really have that, but I know people who kind of like obsess about the past and have these hangups about maybe things they've said or done. Mine doesn't really operate that way, but the difference I think between having an actual anxiety disorder and just having everyday anxiety is that it's like life interrupting. Um, and that it, it's always there. It's not like you have the normal anxiety you would have if you were, you know, like going to do a big event or have a job interview. Like it's, it's that kind of anxiety and it's like persistent about things that don't really warrant it. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I was little, I used to come home from like first grade when your, your homework is like, I have no idea what your homework is in first grade coloring. Something and like I, that, yeah. yeah. And I would like need to get it done right away. I'd be like, I gotta get this done. And that's been sort of how my anxiety has manifested throughout my life is this sort of urgency, this need to have things taken care of and it settled and understood. Um, and so for that reason, like not a bad, not a bad mode to be in as a writer, I guess so. But sometimes I think that it's resulted, especially when I first started publishing in like rushing or feeling like I just got to do this and not like taking the time or being as deliberate as I should have been. I can understand that. Yeah. I was just talking about that today. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, trying to like, wrapping up this novel that I'm working on and like trying to resist or, or trying to navigate the competing impulses, which is, you know, on the one side, desperately wanting it to be done, to be like out of me. And then on the other side, wanting to get it right and to be deliberate and to take my time and to do it as well as I can possibly do it. 
Yeah. And that, I mean, you know, that means more work a lot of the time and you just have to be willing to sort of swallow that. Yeah. And I think it's also that, you know, if you're on the internet or whatever, it, any, in any way, part of this world, like you're just constantly seeing people do things. So you're like, Oh, I should be doing things or I got to get this thing out there. And for me, like, I don't know that, I don't think everyone feels this way and that's fine. But like, for me, that feels like the wrong impulse. And I think it's the impulse I used to have. Um, what, like some sort of competitive keeping up with the, not really like competitive, just like I'm losing time. Yeah. I gotta just do this. And in some ways I think that's good. Like I don't, you know, you can't be so, so precious that you just don't ever do anything or so fearful. But at the same time, I've, I've learned a lot, like in the past few years about just slowing down and being like, just chill, like take a moment. And I do that now when I write, like I will write something and not let myself look at it for like weeks. And that requires like some discipline on my part. And between every like stage of editing, I'll do that. And I know that some people don't like how many weeks. It depends. It depends on like how busy I am in my life, but it's also an enforcement that I set. Like I'll, I'll write something sometimes and I'll like want so badly to look at it the next day. How do you have to enforce it for yourself? Like if you're on a computer, you just put the file on a folder and forget about it. Or do you actually have to physically take it off of your computer? No, I just put it in the file and forget about it. Like I use Google docs and Uh Google drive because I'm very bad at backing things up on my own. So I'll let Google take care of it. Um, but yeah, I just like won't look at it. Um, I email my book to myself. Is that like, because you're paranoid about losing it? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm totally paranoid. I've done that too. I've also emailed it to other people and yeah, I'm, I'm scared of that stuff, but yeah. Cause also Google, like, especially with the Dennis Cooper thing, like they can just wipe you out. Could be gone with impunity. Yes. But I mean, you're not, you know, I don't know if you're like, uh, I don't even, did they ever get that resolved? Yeah, they did. Did he get his stuff back? He got his stuff back. Good. Thank God. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, um, I like when I started publishing stuff, I didn't really know what I was doing. I don't have an MFA. Um, I've been writing for a long time, but like I never really thought I was going to do anything with it. I just have been doing it for a long time. And I have a couple friends that I've, who are writers who I've shared writing with and went to do MFA programs. Um, at one point, somebody, one of these friends said like, you should submit stuff to journals. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, what are you talking about? Um, cause I, you know, I knew literary journals existed, but like, I didn't know where I would look or how I would go about that, or if I was legit enough to do that. Um, so I just started reading some based on recommendations and then I've, you know, started submitting some stuff, some stuff, but like now I'm like, Oh, you should have chilled on that for a minute. Cause I think that I didn't, <laughs> what did you publish on the internet? And you're like, Oh God, I want this taken down. Well, not, not so, not so dramatic like that, but more like there's stuff I published early on that I'm like, eh, you know what? Yeah. That needed a little bit more. I feel or, that way. Yeah. And I think, I think everyone does that, but. Well, you know, too, like the other, like a nice way of thinking about it. I just got a, I, I have like the, I'm on the email list for Austin Cleon. You know who he mm-hmm. is? The yeah. creativity. Like I've had him on the show. Yeah. Um, but he sends out an email every Friday with like 10 links, which is, I don't know. I find it nice. It's like 10 like cool articles or things that he liked on the internet that week. And one of them was about the phrase. I think I got it today. It was about the phrase. Uh, it, it wasn't for me. And, yeah. you know, like it's a nice way to think about art when, in terms of audience reception, like if somebody doesn't, if you don't like somebody's book or it's not for you. Yeah, totally. It's just not for you. And for the people that it's for, it's for them. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It might sound like the most obvious thing in the world, but it brought comfort to me. Cause I can get wrapped up in that. Like 
is this worth it? Is this, you know, is it a mediocrity, blah, 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 blah. And that's like, you know what? It's going to be for some people. Yes. It might not be a million people. It might not even be a hundred people, but whoever it's for, it's for. And that means something. I totally agree. And I've also, I've recently adopted a motto, which is, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and that's like sort of like a mantra I say to myself, not just about writing, but like about life and about myself and anything like it's fine, man. It's like, going to be all right. It's fine. It's very zen. Because I think it's also, it's easy when you're doing creative work to get like so insular with it and feel so like it's the biggest shit in the world. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. You have no idea. I'm sure. Um, but like, I think everyone kind of feels that way. Like it's so easy to, when you're working on something, feel like it's the end of the world, like how it does or how it ends up feeling to you. And I, you know, it should be taken seriously, certainly, but it's not the end of the world. It's not life or death. And you can go on to create other things. You can feel good about what you've done. Like I, I just, I'm trying to just be way Zen about it right now. And I yeah. think part of that is also that I've never been, is it really Zen? I, I kind of, I was silently questioning my usage of that. I don't know. By just saying it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's saying it seems Zen. It does. Yeah. It's a, it's a user-friendly term. I'm not like, I'm not that into Zen-ness. I wish I was like, so I think that sometimes I do try to force zenness upon myself and i think it's fine is is my maybe i don't need to pay 400 and whatever it is to go to the what is it uh transcendental meditation it's more than 400 yeah that's probably just like the entry fee right yeah that's like that's like maybe gets you in the door shit yeah it's like i want to say it's over a thousand dollars hmm yeah well because i i read something about it and people were like they just give you a mantra yeah and i was like yeah i got one it's fine <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, I think also because like I've never I've never done anything like this before. I've never, you know, put a book out there. I've published things online. It feels a little, it feels scary, especially you know because my anxiety is always just at me. Like, you're very bad. You're very very. You bad. don't deserve this. Do you have that? Um. Yes, I have that, and I you know I feel like the term imposter syndrome is a little overused, but I full I fully feel that. Yeah. Um. And I you know. It, from people I've talked to, even people who I think are like at the top of their game, they're like, yeah, you always feel that. Did I suffer enough for this? Did I work as hard as I possibly could? Yeah. Did I bleed out my eyeballs to make it as good as it could possibly be? Or am I sticking it out there prematurely because I want some sort of uh, ego response? Oh my God. Do you ever worry about that? Uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just bringing this up. I'm not, you know, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, sometimes <laughs> I saw this hashtag, you sorry. Um, on Twitter the other day, which was why I write. And some people were taking it seriously and some people were joking about it. And I saw somebody, I can't remember who say, I don't know. And I was like, that's great. <laughs> I love that. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> because, um, sometimes I don't know. I mean, I've been writing stupid stories. Like since I, when I was really little, I wrote like some really dumb little things like, uh, historical fiction about Abraham Lincoln, just, like in my grade school? Yes, but like nothing that you're imagining. Like just like a false narrative about Abraham Lincoln. But it was always just fun for me and it's been fun for me. And it, I don't want it to be n not fun for me anymore. And I think that... Why is it fun for you? Um, well, it's, it's a weird place to be in right now to answer that question. Because I feel like the editing process was not very fun. Um, and also just like putting something out there is, is not 
it is fun. I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but I have to like remind myself it's fun. But like the actual writing for me is really fun because I, I do have a kind of heavy job. And what's your job? I work for a nonprofit that helps men who are sexually abused in childhood. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is a heavy job. It is. So you're a counselor. I'm not a counselor. So we don't provide direct service. We're a most, I'll, I'll plug us. We're called one in six, um, because that's the statistic is one in six men, um, have experienced, we, we call it unwanted or abusive sexual experiences before. One in six. One in six. That's a real stat. Yep. Damn. And they actually, researchers think it's low because there's such a high, um, people don't report. Exactly. Yeah. There's a really big stigma around it specifically for men, you know, because it's, um, it's a threat to masculinity and there's a lot of myths around it. There's a lot of myths that men, um, will offend if they've been harmed in the past. It terrifies me as a parent. Yeah. There's creepy. I and mean, there's so, like, you ever get on the uh, internet and look at like Angie's list or whatever it is, like the web or there's like a, there's a website that shows you where, uh, Oh yeah. You can like search predators see, in your yes, area, predators in your area yeah. in, in a city like Los Angeles. Yeah. People who have, you know, and, and like, I should say that there are people who have to register as sex offenders. It's so it's not, not all of them, uh, were like child molesters. I think there's different things that can land you on that list. None That's of which are, true. none of which are all that savory, No, but it's still disconcerting to like, look up your area and be like, holy shit, we're surrounded. Yeah. And you know, but one thing I will say to that is that, um, you know, while not every, uh, man who was abused as a child, will go on to offend many who offend were abused as a child. Right. So we're sensitive to that and we make sure that our resources are for those people. Why is that as well? I, you know, cause I know that. And like, I understand uh, like some basic logic, but it's like this terrible thing happens to you. It is deeply damaging and hurts a lot. Yeah. And so in response you grow and it's not just, uh, like sexual molestation or whatever. It's also physical abuse, right? Like there are a lot of these like really deep, dark, negative behaviors that wind up like echoing later in life. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I know there's gotta be some sort of like good psychological explanation. Well, I'm not a clinician, so I can't fully speak to it. But what I can say is that, um, I believe that a lot of times it's a reassertion of power, which manifests in a not good way because the ultimate, you know, um, being abused or assaulted is the ultimate removal of power. Right. You're having your power taken. I mean, I also, when I lived in New York, I used to work as a rape crisis advocate, um, in the emergency room, uh, down in the East village. And I would see women for the most part, women actually, um, who had been assaulted, mostly raped. And it's, it's amazing how, how, how much you can see that they feel like their power has been taken women women don't abuse as much not as much but they do but they do they do yes and women abuse men um and there's also you know there's a big you mythology mean, you mean women or, women abuse boys or women abuse men both, both both and there's a big mythology around that which is that that can't happen right um which is not true because you know the idea is oh you should be so lucky you know like when we hear these stories about a teacher a female teacher you know um, abusing her student think like, Oh, way to go, man. And like, that's, that's completely false. Um, so it does happen. Um, 
And it's easy to joke about that as a guy, like, you know, like, Oh man, if one of my hot, te- like we had a hot art teacher at my high school and all the guys like pined for her. Yeah. I but think, it, but that's like part of the, that's, that's kind of part of the problem in a way is that, is that that's the expected response for a man. They're expected to feel that way and to have that, um, you know, tough guy, like, yeah, man, she's so hot, which is, um, isolating for people who don't feel that way and maybe had that experience. And so it just adds to the, um, the problems with coming forward. Is that like, oh man, maybe I should have wanted it. Maybe I should have felt good about it. Um, and you know, the other side is of it is that if they did want it, um, and it was abuse or not, you know, they wanted it at the time they liked it. They, they enjoyed it. That doesn't mean it wasn't abuse. So it's really complicated. It's yeah. really nuanced. And, um, so a lot of our resources are like information, like readings online, a place where men can go anonymously to see answers to common questions. Um, they can, we have like a free online hotline. What's the website? One in six.org. One in six. That's where it all starts. Yep. Is there a hotline or anything like there is, there's an online, um, it's a chat line. It's free and anonymous and there's trained volunteers. It's fabulous. And then we also have a, um, a new program of online support groups for men. So men can go on and talk to each other. And it's been amazing. Um, you know, a lot of men have said like, they've never talked to anyone else who's ever experienced this. And so that's a huge, huge step. Um, cause a lot of men who've experienced these things don't deal with it, um, ever or until later in life when the legacies of the abuse have already wreaked mm-hmm. havoc like, on their life, depression, yeah. addiction, all kinds of things. Um, so, so what do you do for them? I do a lot of things. Um, it's a really small nonprofit. And part of the reason for that, it's, it's difficult to get funding for this issue because we focus on men. Um, and yeah. And that's interesting that you're, that you're working for them. Like I feel it, it like, it, I think it's great. I'm just saying that it feels like most of the attention is on uh, women. Yeah. And for and a it, woman to be working on at a nonprofit focused on abused men, like it's just not the most like logical thought leap or whatever. Yeah. But you know, I think that that's been part of the problem is that, um, you know, men have kind of been pushed aside in the conversation. The reality is that men who've experienced abuse or assault, you know, those experiences bleed out to the community, their communities, their families, everyone around them. So it's, you know, treating men is, is really, it's a human issue. Um, so we are one of the only, um, nonprofits and the only international one, I believe that deals with this issue. You're all, international. Yeah. All of our resources can be accessed internationally. Um, and we also provide trainings to professionals around the world and, um, You're oh, making the world a better place. Well, I that's hope a good so. job. That's a good job. It's, it's a noble good. job. It's really good. It's weird too, because I, I studied art history in college and I moved to New York and worked for like, I don't know if you know who Jeff Koons is, Yeah, but I worked for Jeff Koons. You know him? Yeah, I know What's him. he like? Uh, he's an interesting guy. That's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> I like him. You know, it's when I was working for him, it was, um, he's, he's difficult. He's particular. Um, but now that I have some distance from it, he's just, I think he's a really smart guy. I think he knows what he's doing. He Wasn't knows... he like a banker? 
or something before he was an artist? Well, not really. I think he worked at a bank. Okay. Well, but, what's the difference? Yeah. I feel like saying banker makes it sound like he was like... Like uh, Patrick Bateman. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> That's what I want him to be. I want him yeah, to be a... he's not quite that. I think he's a little softer than people think. But yeah. looking back on that experience, like I see that he was... He's not a bad guy. He's really particular. Just, you know, he... He's clearly very successful. He is. And I think he's really smart. Like, he you know, a lot of people will like kind of write his stuff off as being, you know, simplistic or too poppy or something, but he knows a lot about art history. Well, I'll tell you this. I just took my daughter to the Broad to oh, see yeah. the, uh, Cindy Sherman, you know, just to take her. We, my wife and I are just like, let's take her to the museum so we can feel like we're good parents for a couple hours or whatever. And, yeah. Uh, the first thing she walked towards was that big balloon dog. Yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like totally. there, there's an appeal and then she was a little creeped out by, uh, Michael Jackson and bubbles, <laughs> which I felt good about. Yeah, that is good. But it's, it's interesting how his work has changed over the years. I mean, he used to do these like really figurative, he went through a period of doing these really figurative sculpture sculptures like the Michael Jackson. And now his stuff is a lot more bombastic, but what was he doing when you were with him? He was doing like the balloon dog. And what he, were you, what were you doing for him? I was his registrar. What does that mean? Um, it means I was kind of keeping track of his artwork. It's coming and going. It's, oh, where is it? Where is like it? What museum is it at? Yeah. And also kind of like works in progress. Um, cause he has a huge studio in New York, um, with about like a hundred people, hundred artists working there. Well, he, that's the thing Like he basically conceptualizes a lot of this stuff and then hands it off to uh, his employees to manufacture a lot of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's like the idea guy. Yeah. He's not in there like with getting his hands dirty on a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of people who have followed that though. I mean, Andy Warhol did a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and that's a, I mean, by the way, to exist in the rare air that he does as a visual artist, like God knows how much money he gets for one of his pieces. I'm aware. How much does he get? I mean, it million, millions of dollars. Yes. It Good depends God. on the piece. I know. And he, I know. and he just like, and he can, when you have like a, like a factory, yeah. you have employees who are, you can generate more. When... Well, but you know, it's not as easy as that. I feel like it sounds like he could just be like, all right, go do this. It's taken care of. But he's like really involved and he's so, so specific. I mean, he's really like involved in every part of it. Yeah. So you would have to be, you can, yeah. it's not just like, it's not like he's just like you know, uh, coughing this stuff out. Like he's like, wa- he'd be like walking around the studio, like the whole day, like looking over things. Like he's not just sitting in some office, like smoking a cigar. Damn. Um, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Like I wanted him to be in like Barbados. <laughs> I'm just sure like... that happens on occasion. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was interesting cause I was also like supervising, uh, you know, seeing what, where the work was in progress in the studio. And that was interesting to see because when I was there, he was working on this Popeye series, which is like, I'm sure, I think, do they have one at the Broad? It's, they look like inflatables, like pool inflatables. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, they're made to look like pool inflatables, but they're steel. They're super heavy. But he like was so detail-oriented about them, he wanted them to look exactly like they'd just come out of like a package from Toys R Us, like including the fold lines and everything. So it's this real like uh, trick of the eye, you know? Um, How did you get this job? This is such a weird story. So... I moved to New York. I had an internship at Art Forum. So I thought I was going to like go and do art things after college. Because you were an art history major. Yeah. And I really liked it. Before I left school, I worked at a art history library and it was great. I worked there for like a year and a half. Um, and then I got this internship at Art Forum and I worked there. 
And then when the internship was over, I was looking for jobs and I saw this one on Craigslist that said personal assistant to a major artist. It was something like really simple. On Craigslist. Yes. And it was like the most simple and it didn't say who he was (laughs) or anything. So I replied to it. I went there and I got an interview and I sat down and it was Jeff, um, his studio assistant. I feel like there was one other person there, but anyway, we got to talking and we were talking about, you know, my, uh, where'd you go to college? University of Michigan. Okay. And then you were in New York after college. Okay. Yeah. So I sat down, we were talking about my experience and, um, at one point he, uh, said, Oh, you went to university of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I said, yeah, he said, my friend, Patty Smith, she lives in, uh, Ypsilanti. I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, she does. And I said, you know, uh, Patty, Patty Smith, the, uh, the singer lives in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I don't know if she does anymore. She lives in New York. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think that (laughs) at the the time I think he was referring to her having lived there. Yeah. But anyway, for like a minute. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I'm know. actually not sure. I'm no expert. It just seems like I, I so associate with yeah, her. Yeah, there's New no York. chance she lives in Ypsilanti now. <laughs> you been to Ypsilanti? No. Hell no. Um, but anyway, so I was like, oh yeah, Iggy and the Stooges like were from Ypsilanti too. I actually keep an Iggy Pop trading card in my wallet, and he was like, no way. Let me see. I love Iggy, and I was like, okay. So I pulled it out, and then he pulled out his wallet. He was like, I keep his phone number in my wallet. You just got the job. Well, then he turned to his studio assistant and he was like, I think she should be the registrar. And I like, didn't really know what that meant exactly. Like I sort of knew. And his studio assistant looked like super nervous. He was like, um, I don't know. Uh, we'll talk about it, Jeff. He was like, no, no, that's what I want. That's what I want. Studio assistant was like, um, all right. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll get back to you. We'll get back to you. And like case closed. Like that was it. You got an even bigger job. Yes. It was like way bigger. They then hired another personal assistant who like proceeded to cry in the bathroom like every other day because it was hard to, I think it was harder to be his personal assistant really than his registrar because you were dealing with like his personal. He took mercy on you because you like Iggy Pop. I know. That trading card or whatever. He also trusted me because it is a big job. Like it's, you know, he also was a big, um, he bought a lot of art at auction. And so I would be part of that process of like, helping the art get back to the studio and like making sure it was framed properly and stored properly. Oh my God. Right. And you have to have it insured. I would imagine. Oh my God. It was really scary. Actually. I was really young. Like I, when I look back on that, I'm like, Holy shit. Like, I can't believe he trusted me to do that. Like I was was 14 years old. (laughs) How how, you were just mentally 14 years old. (laughs) Yeah. I was just out of college. Like it was like a year after college. So, so this is, but this, this has always been a fascination for me is the way the mechanics of like, the upper tiers of the art world. Yeah. How does one get to a point where one's art is that valuable? Like, I guess you could say the same thing about books, but it just seems, it seems even more mysterious to me. Like, how do you get to the, you have to have the right gallerist. Like who are the, the people who can, uh, knight someone? Do you it's know what I'm gallerists. saying? It really is. And it's, and it's people who are collectors. Like if the right collector falls in love with your work, it's there, you're done. You're There's done. like a handful. There's, you know, there's a short list of like the biggest collectors and like, like Eli Broad and totally. All, yeah. And like, he had all of those and, you know, um, he also was respect, uh, sorry, what's it called? Represented by Gagosian, but like, it's, that'll help. Yeah. And I, but I think also it's not just, it is talent. You know, it's not like someone's just going to be plucked out of nowhere. Um, randomly like Jeff's really talented. Um, and I think, you know, I went to that Banksy, uh, art exhibit down at that warehouse with like his first ever LA show. Oh man. 
I went to that. Were you bummed out? I mean, I was bummed out about the elephant. I felt, I always feel bad for the animals. Yeah. There was a live elephant there. Yeah. And I was sort of like, that sucks. But, it does suck. Um, no, but I was just thinking to myself, like, I think there was a private showing for big money people like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, like came in and bought up a bunch of stuff the night before the public showing. Yeah. So I don't think that like the average, like, you know, um, person like me could have gone in and gotten anything good. No. I mean, most of those, most of those like exhibitions that are going on in galleries that everything's already sold. Everything's already sold. Yeah. How do, so how do you get to be a person who can go in and buy? Because what I was thinking is like... You're rich. <laughs> if I, But I mean, like I could have cobbled together $25,000. Uh, I mean, yeah. Like what if I would have just... Like, you at that could moment, though. You at could that like moment. email them or like... I mean, I th- or you could... Yeah. I mean, most of the time it's like... Some people have art agents who like help them make purchases, which is like really weird that that's a job. But then other times, like if you just, if you have money, you want to make an investment, you know about it, you email them and you're like, really? Oh, yeah. That's like, as I simple was, as that. I was like, God, if I just would have had the balls to be like, here's, here's 25 grand. Give me this Banksy painting. I probably have made a lot of money on that. Yeah. You know, like a lot of money, potentially a lot of money, depending on which one it was. And then. Um, I remember after that Vivian Meyer, uh, documentary came out, the the street photographer in Chicago or whatever, Mm -hmm. I came like this close to buying a print for three grand. But then there was a big lawsuit, which froze all of the, the prints. And then I talked to a buddy of mine who knows more about this than I do. And he was like, yeah, they're, that's not going to be valuable. Like they're not. There's like, there's like multiple prints. Exactly. You're not like, how do you get like ground zero photo, like the one photograph, like I don't, yeah, I don't understand. I you feel know? like you're kind of already on the inside if you're doing that. I want to see, this is what I want to do though, because there's always these stories about like Banksy's and I'm, you know, I'm just using him as an example. Cause he's like a you know popular artist or whatever yeah. of the day, but who um, is Banksy? I have no idea. He's going to be on the show next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you know, I, it's like the, the guy who lived next door to Banksy when he was just like a nobody and he would like trade paintings oh, for, yeah. you know, whatever for food. And this guy winds up with like, you know, a trove of early Banksy's that's now worth like $15 million, whatever it is. I'm not into Banksy. You don't, what, what, what don't you like about him? I just, I visually don't like it. Okay. I think it's boring. What do you like? In art? Yeah. Oh man. I mean. Who's a hero? An artist? Yeah. I love Corbet. Okay. I don't um, even know who that is. That's how bad I am. Gustave Corbet. Um, maybe you've seen, um, a painting it's called, I'm going to, I don't even want to say it in French, honestly. It's called the origin of the world. It's like, no, John do <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, no thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's a painting of like, a a woman's torso All right. with like her vagina, full hairy vagina. And it's beautiful. I think I've seen that. You probably have. Yeah. When I was working at Jeff's, um, there was a, he had a framer who I worked with a lot and I love that painting. Actually, Jeff loves that painting. And um, one of the framer made me this little measuring tape that has the the painting on it. Like it's like a little circle with the painting on it. And I've had it forever, and I love it. So I'm like always measuring things with this vagina, <laughs> and I just love it. I had this moment actually when I was thinking about like something fun to do for my book. I was like, I should just make a bunch of these uh, measuring tapes with. Corbet's origin of the world on it. Why not? And like not explain it. No, just, just give like it to send, people. Just put it with the book. <laughs> why, why don't you do it's that? It's not too late. It's no. not too late. It's, it would be memorable. Would cost, it would be memorable. All right. You didn't hear that. If yeah. you're ordering the book, it's coming your way. <laughs> Prepare to measure. 
Um, well, that's cool. And so how long did you work for Jeff Koons? I worked for him for two years. And when I left, it was very dramatic. Why? He did not want me to leave. He liked you. Yeah, it was, I, it felt like breaking up with someone. Like when I first told him he was, he like, didn't accept it. Literally did not accept it. He was like, um, no. And you, like, sh- you should have been like, give me a balloon dog, dude. Then we'll talk. <laughs> give me a balloon dog and I'll stay. I don't know. I was really, I was like at the end of my rope. Like I was really stressed out. It was like bleeding into my weekends. I was like drinking a six pack every day after work. I'm not kidding. Like I was just stressed. Like I just felt like I couldn't do it. Um, but it's funny because looking back, I'm like, I wonder if I was older, if I wouldn't have been as stressed. But it's it's a weird situation. It's almost like I imagine what it would be like working for a celebrity. Uh-huh. Just like the person. He's a celebrity artist. Yeah, he is. He's as big of a celebrity as a visual artist can be. This is true. But it's like people think of it a little differently. But like, I think that it's true that um, it's a personality. You're working for a big personality, which can be really difficult. Draining. You have to sort of like, you get subsumed into their... Yeah. And I got, I got his anxieties. Like he has a lot of anxieties and he had a lot of anxieties about like, you know, work that he had purchased and whether it was safe in storage, which like, you know, a lot of it was just like, dude, it's fine. But like, I would get really anxious because it felt like my responsibility. I would like take on those anxieties. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was a hard breakup. And I like wrote him a letter when I left, like telling him like, Jeff, like I really appreciated this. And, um, it was really sad. It was weird. And then I saw him like a year later at some art fair and we had like a nice moment where he was like, Oh, I hope you're doing okay. And it's weird. Like to this day, I still get emails sometimes, um, from auction houses that like are forwarded from my old email that have like a painting available that he might be interested in. And I still forward them to his studio. Really? Yeah. You, and, but you don't talk to him regularly. No, but yeah. I occasionally will get an email back from his studio manager saying, you know, I hope you're well or something like that. But it's very weird. It's this thing that like continues on. I keep getting these emails and I will look at them and consider if it's something that Jeff might be interested in though. Who knows? His interest may have changed by now. Yeah. yeah. So he collects art as well. I guess, I oh, guess yeah. you would if you have that kind of A money. lot and, and eclectic taste but he's really into old masters and modern art and stuff that you wouldn't expect you would probably think he'd be into like pop art but and so okay if you wanted to be like a because i think of it like sort of like uh stock trading mm-hmm. yeah you know and there are people who have lots and lots of money who run their own uh, mutual funds and do all this stuff and hedge funds but then there are just like people who are savvy investors yeah who are more like work a day yes who wind up building up a nice portfolio and can get very wealthy for sure. Okay. So if I'm a more workaday art collector, like what do you read in order to know what to buy? Where do you go? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like there's, it, it feels like an information problem. It's yeah. Like, there's gotta be like an, there's an inside game happening somewhere. Well, there's this, uh, there's always like art agents or, you know, people who are helping people buy art always say you have to start with what you like. You have to, cause there's like no guarantee. Um, so you should buy something you love. Um, but you know, a lot of times people will just look at what's coming up in like the Christie's or Sotheby's catalog and then look up its provenance and find information about it and try to determine its value that way. Um, but it's also, you know, it's like a taste thing. Like he bought stuff sometimes that I'd be like, Oh man, like you're never going to sell that cow painting back. Like maybe he will, but he just loved stuff too, which for me was, well, he's got fun money. He does. Doesn't matter. He does. He can buy shit he likes. This is true. 
Sounds got, like you need an art investor. You're like you're or an art agent. You sound very interested in this. I don't know. I, well, I just it's very mysterious to me, and I think I'm I, I am uh, I romanticize. Yeah. Like picking a winner, you know. Oh yeah. Getting like some painting, like because I mean these paintings go on to become priceless. Imagine if you had a Picasso. Oh yeah. Or, he has several. Yeah. They're beautiful. Good God. I know. But you bought it early. Like you bought it in 1920. That's that's the way to go. That's the way to go. He hands it to you for a cup of soup. See, if you mm-hmm. would have stayed with him, maybe he would have started dishing you paintings. Oh man. But like I stayed in the art world then I went and worked for the Andy Warhol foundation. Um, and I worked in their visual archive and that was cool. Um, but so while, while I was doing that, I started work or volunteering as a rape crisis advocate. Why? Do you have I, experience with abuse? No, but I had an incident in college where I had, um, a man like chase me on the street and stalk me. And it was really strange and very scary. And after in, that, in, in, uh, in, in Arbor. Arbor, yeah. And after that happened, I started having these like weird nightmares about like what would have happened. What, um, what paint the picture, not to make you relive like a really terrible moment or anything, but like, what does this mean? Cause like you're walking. Yeah. I was like walking home from a friend's house and it was I no- dark and it was late. That yeah. kind of thing. And okay. I noticed a guy ahead of me. Um, and he looked back at me and I was like, Oh, like I immediately got this weird feeling about it. Um, you should always listen to those feelings. Exactly. I'm going there with the story actually, because the whole time I was walking behind him, I was like, chill out. Like, it's fine. It's fine. Don't. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) In that case, don't apply that motto. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was just trying to, you know, rationalize it. Like, it's fine. Like he's, he didn't look like a student though. He was like an older guy. And he's not behind you. He's in front of you. Exactly. So I was like, but I was like, why did I get that weird feeling when he looked at me? Like, so we're walking, walking. He turns down a driveway and I'm like, Oh, exactly. He's walking home. Just like I thought he's going home. I walk past the driveway and he's just like looking at me standing in the middle of the driveway. It was like <sighs> so scary. Um, and so I started walking faster. At this point I started to get like the adrenaline kind of thing. Like I felt a little blurry, even looking back on it now, like it feels a little swampy, the whole thing. And then I heard like running and he was ultimately what happened is he ran behind the house of the driveway he had gone down and came down the side so that he would be behind me so that he would reposition himself behind me on the sidewalk. Um, and so I just took off like running. Yeah. At that point I took off running. Good for you. And he was behind me. Was he running? I think he was, but it's like very blurry. Like I feel like I heard sounds. It's just strange. It was like a total adrenaline freak out like moment. fight or flight. Yeah. It animal was really, response. Well, because it did feel what's weird that you say that. Cause it felt really animal. It's like predatory. I, yeah. I immediately felt like prey. Like I was like, Holy shit. This dude did this thing to get behind me, Ugh. and now he's behind me. Did he look fucked up? He didn't look fucked up, but he looked like different than he didn't look like a student. Like he was like a tall white guy, like older. He had like glasses on. He had shorts and like tall socks on. He just like looked like an older man who, you know, it was like a really um, it was a main street on campus, but it was late at night and it was quiet and dark. Um, and so he did seem out of place and I, that might be why when I saw him, I was like, Ooh, like what, what is this? What are you doing here? What is this? Yeah. Um, and I ended up running onto the porch of a co-op where my friend used to live. Um, and I saw some people who I didn't know, but like, I just like, was like, Oh my God. And they saw him. They were like, 
I was like, this guy is following me. And they were like, oh my God, he just like ran down the street to the right. Like he was, he was following me up to the point to like, he saw me go up on the porch and then like turned down another street. It was so scary. And so after that, I was really scared. I was really paranoid. Even during the day, I was like, don't do this to an anxious girl. Right. Yeah. Or anyone or anyone. But I mean, like like for me, I was already, yes, I was already anxious, but it became this thing where I was obsessing over like, what was he trying to do? Which that's no way to take your brain. That's awful. But for some reason I was obsessing about it and I actually felt kind of guilty about like, well, nothing happened to me technically. And so why am I so fucked up about this? Um, and I, I kind of, you know, I was really, it was hard. Like for six months, it was really very bad to like be out at night. And I think, I think if you're an intuitive person, which it seems like you are, and which I think a lot of writers are, um, you can get a lot of information, nonverbal cues or whatever. Yeah. And especially in a situation like that, like, Whatever, whatever was going on with this guy, it was not good is what it sounds like to me. Like it was, it was very dark. Yeah. And I think that since that, I listened to my instincts super hard. Like if I don't feel right in a situation, I'm like, get out of here, man. Like I don't question it anymore. I'm really like, you know, I think, I think I've been informed by that. But so when I moved to New York and I, I think I was just looking for volunteer opportunities because I was sort of disenchanted with the art world. I was like, Oh, it's such a superficial money. Yeah. I just felt like, Oh, I just need to do something else. And so I found this, um, opportunity to work as a advocate. And I think because I felt, which, you know, now I know is not appropriate to have felt guilt about nothing having happened and still being messed up about it. That was where my brain was. I was like, Oh my God, so many awful things happened to so many people. And I got out of this situation. Why am I still scared and upset about it and anyway you had a close call yeah yeah it it now i can see that it's totally legit to have felt the way i felt but at the time i just felt like i kind of wanted to do something around it so when i found this i was like yeah i totally want to do this and it was amazing like i loved it so much it was really difficult like i would be on call several times a month and if somebody went into the hospital um, after an assault, I would go in and talk to them and help them make decisions about healthcare, about, um, reporting to the police, um, and just kind of like be the person there who wasn't demanding anything of them. Because in that situation, like there are so many demands, they need questions answered by the doctor. They need questions answered by the police. Um, and so just being the person there who's like, you don't have to do anything for me or them. It's up to you. Um, and just being like a neutral party who's only there to help like them. Like an advocate. Yeah. And you must it, have seen some crazy stuff. Yeah. It was really, it was really difficult, but it was really, um, it was amazing too. And so I, when I moved to LA, I had it in my mind that, wow, I wonder if I can like do that work instead. I wonder if I can find a way to do that work or something in the field of victim services. And I didn't know if it was possible because I only had this volunteer experience. And I had also done some other volunteer work around like events around sexual assault in New York. Um, So when I moved here, I was like looking for jobs. I was still kind of working for um, one of my jobs in New York, just part-time, like remote. And I found this job with one in six, but it was really part-time. It was like one day a week. So I started- One in five. (laughs) 
Get it? One in seven. One in, well, I mean, the work week. Oh, okay. <laughs> you win. Um, I so I got it and I, di- I started doing it like only one day a week. And very shortly they were like, hey, you can obviously do more. Like we think you can do more. I moved up to like a couple days a week. And then the person who was my supervisor left and they promoted me to that position. So it did require a bit of like, I mean, I was doing other work on the side, but just like hoping that it would turn into something else. And it has, and it's just awesome. Like that's, that's what I wanted to do after having that experience in New York. And I, I managed to do it out here and I didn't expect that it would be with men. Like I didn't even know this. I was going to say, you didn't, you didn't say, you know what? Cause like, it's sort of interesting when you talk about how these things kind of perpetuate themselves and that people who are abused often go on to become abusers. And no, that, that is not true. Well, not often go on. They sometimes Sometimes. Do. Okay. Sometimes. They usually, I want to clear that up right now. Okay. They usually do not. Okay. Most men who are abused as children do not go on, Good. but sometimes they do. All right. <laughs> so no, but I'm glad you did clarify that yes. because I think sometimes it's easy to like misspeak about it. Yeah. And yeah. Mischaracterize Which it. it's important too. I think like it, language we use about it is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a slippery slope. You can make a, a very small mistake that can have a very big impact. Totally. Um, but what I wanted to say is that if you're a person who's concerned about abuse generally and being an advocate for victims generally, and then you talk about uh, like sexual abuse, it's usually perpetrated, but not always by men mm-hmm. and that men who are abused sometimes nice go on to become, uh, abusers. Yes. If you're helping men who have been abused cope with their experiences, you are probably at least to some extent, you like how lawyerly I'm being, I'm even, this is so good. You it's can't just like, see me, but I'm using the politician. He's, like, doing, hand the, he's doing the Bill Clinton thumb. <laughs> it's like really, it's really happening here. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> but I'm just saying that like, it's a way of breaking the cycle. Absolutely. Wow. You even know like the terminology. Um, yeah, it is. And you know, it's been interesting to work, begin working in the field with men because there are, it's just like a whole new set of considerations when working with men because men are so left behind in the movement and so forgotten about. And, and also, you know, the culture of masculinity and toxic masculinity, it's really, uh, it's really damaging. It's really hard for men who've experienced these things to come forward because of it. So it's been really, um, what has it taught you about men? I mean, cause like, it's not often that you find a woman who's working in the role that you're working in. It's not, it's not an, I don't know if that's true. Really? Like yeah. as an advocate for male victims of abuse? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that many people who work in the field. So, well, you know, it might be because there's not much in the field to help men who have been abused. So there's just not many people doing it. Um, but at my organization, we have eight people and three of them are women. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, for me, what it's told me about masculinity is that it's, it can be really toxic. It can be really damaging. Um, and men are fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I'm so careful with saying stuff like that. Like I've been, (laughs) I've been totally like, I've been put through the system of like, don't say shit. like I know, but you know, I know what you mean, but like, like in my Twitter universe and like, like the, the broad brushstroke perception that one has when one looks out at the world and like, you know, ingests like a fire hose of media. Yeah. You're just like, you know, Women have their issues too. Yeah. But let's be honest. It's mostly men or it's predominantly men 
and it's predominantly white men. Well, yeah, I mean, it's and it's cultural, and it's like you know that's why it's like uh, a big part of our mission is shifting the culture around that stuff because it is you know man up culture, uh, boys talk culture. If we want to be locker room talk, exactly. Yeah, you you <laughs> didn't I didn't have to say it. Um, it's pervasive and it's it's kind of groupthink. So, and I, and I don't think a lot of men actually feel that way, but I think it's kind of like part of the group think, and it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, men are allowed to be emotional. Men are, uh, also sensitive creatures. It's, I'm a sensitive creature. I can tell. Yeah. Brad's got his legs crossed right now. Um, so yeah, he is. I am. Yeah. I, I will cross my leg. Like this is like how a woman would cross her legs. All right. But I'm, I'm just saying like for the, the listener. Oh, okay. This is well, a more feminine crossing red cross. at the knee. Yeah, it is. Come you look very casual, though. You look very like comfortable. I am. Well, I'm also because of the, the way this desk is arranged. This desk I, is a problem. Yeah, I've got to like bend in order to get to the microphone. Yeah, so you're I'm doing you're doing well. Contorting myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know it is. It, I've never. I think speaking from my own experience, I was never uh, comfortable in those kinds of environments. You know, like. Uh, not that I, because I, 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 it's kind of complicated because I do think that there is such a thing as like a bunch of guys hanging out and making jokes and like saying inappropriate things. And it's really fucking funny. And I don't mean like cruel, vicious. Yeah. I mean, like there's some, there's a place for like a bunch of guys hanging out. The hangover, the movie well, just, in yeah. theaters now. I, I think that there's an argument to be, to be made that. Uh, feminizing men isn't the answer. You got to let men be men. We well, want men. No, it's not feminizing men. But there is some of that, is what I'm saying. I don't know. You I don't, don't know if I agree with that. What do you mean feminizing men? Just like it's like, listen, there's there's such a thing as a man, and sure. you know, guys are like a little crude and you know, well, but dirty no, okay, or... I think that's on. I think that's I disagree because I think saying <laughs> there's such a thing as a man suggests that there's only one way to be a man. No, there's many ways to be a man, but there's just I feel like there's a certain I guess I'm just trying not to like fully deny like, manhood bro culture. Okay. Like there's a place for bros. Like I might not be like the quintessential bro. I like, think there's I... a place for bros because there are bros. Yeah. Like, but I think that the reality is that like, you know, it's, it's important to acknowledge the complexity of men and women. Right. And I think that when we don't acknowledge the complexity of men, you simplify them. Yeah. And like, it's this thing like, well, men are going to be men. And like, that's part of the problem for women and for men. Are you saying that I'm part of the problem? Maybe. Maybe. Are you going to change your opinion here <laughs> in the next should. couple minutes? I should. Yeah. No, no but I think like, you know, it's because you started out saying like, well, we can't feminize men and we can't like strip them of their manhood. Like, well, no one's trying to do that. I think it's more that we're trying to uh, acknowledge that. <sighs> Men are complex. Men are not just locker room talk. There are some men who are predisposed to that for whatever reason, whatever cultural influences they have. But like, I don't think men as a whole are like beyond repair. Like there's plenty of very good men out there. Right. Um, And right now we're in a situation where we're seeing a horrible example of a man and it's damaging to women. You're talking about Trump. Yeah. Didn't you said his name? I didn't have to. (laughs) I see Michelle's speech where she didn't say his name. I I was like, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, where it's damaging to women, it's really damaging to men. It's horrible to men. So, you know, I, I think 
and this is probably my opinion on this is so strong because of the work I do and because of, you know, part of my job at um, one six is reading letters from men who contact us, um, who have, you know, thoughts about themselves or masculinity that are really um, hindering their healing process. And so I've really changed the way I think about this stuff. Um, I've really become more sensitive and less angry at men. I'm obviously so angry at Trump. It's, you know, it's gotten to the point where I thought I wasn't going to watch the third debate because after the second one, I was just like, shit. Like, I just like felt so stressed. Um, and I think everyone's kind of like dealing with a little fatigue over that, particularly women. Um, but it's changed, you know, my work has changed the way I respond to and think about men. And I do so with a lot more, um, compassion. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. We need more of that going both ways. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of the attitude that like, you're not going to help anyone if you're alienating them. Um, and it's okay to be angry as well. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to be angry at certain men or certain, um, language or, you know, even the culture around like manning up that type of thing. Well, but, so, okay. So, what, yeah. so what, what, I mean, not to get on, I don't want to talk too much about Trump just because it, <laughs> it dates itself, but it's also exhausting. Here we go. But it's, a, it's going to be a thing that will be talked about in the future. And I it think, will so. echo and there's going to yeah. be echoes. Like we think, you know, there's going to be consequences of empowering this guy. Yes. But you know, to, to put politics to the side. Yeah. I'm genuinely curious what's wrong with him. Like, like what happened to him? Like, was he, cause he seems like somebody to me and I'm just armchair quarterbacking this or armchair, you know, psychotherapisting. Yeah. If that's a verb. That'll do. Um, I, I think that his parents, um, you know, his dad was a rough character. Wasn't right. a super warm guy. I don't think his mom, I'm not sure. I don't know. Did the, you watch the front line? Yeah. So good. Yeah. It was yeah. really good. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, he has never seen, you know, obviously made any mention of anything bad happening ever. Cause everything's gold and perfect in his life or whatever. But, right. uh, I just got to believe that there was some damage done to him when he was a boy. I don't, I hate to again, reference Twitter, but I saw somebody like theorizing about this on Twitter and saying like, it's all about mother issues. Like he's got mom issues and that's why he is this way towards women. And he's always trying to look for women's approval. And when he doesn't get it, it, I don't know what's wrong. That with makes him. sense. I'm yeah. buying, I'm buying all that. Yeah. I mean, it could be because I, it's like, you know, you can't help somebody if you alienate them. And I know that like Donald Trump is not going to be on a therapist couch anytime soon, but I it's was like, just going to say he's like a perfect candidate for therapy, but I, maybe I wish, not. I wish he would get some. I, I think narcissists can't do therapy because, the, or like, you know, not very well because they're like, it can't be you're broken. Wrong. <laughs> That's what they say. Yeah. Cause I just like, I feel an enormous, if I'm being like a compassionate, if I'm a big person yeah, and I'm looking at him in, a, in like a, you know, I don't know. What's the word? Something's wrong is what you're thinking. He, he seems sad. Oh, absolutely. He's so sad. Absolutely. There's a great He's sadness. He's sad and angry. Yeah. Which anger is a secondary emotion. So usually if somebody's angry, which he clearly is, you know, and he's stirring up a lot of anger in, um, you know, whatever we can call his supporters, I'm going to start saying it's his fringe, whatever. It's 40% of the country. I know, but it's also, you know, it's 40% of the country, but I sometimes wonder if it wasn't Hillary, if it would be that high. 
Well, and the other, you know, the other thought that I had, and now we're getting into politics. Here but, we go. But uh, no, it's it's a sal- I think it's a salient point that uh, hopefully won't date itself too quickly. But I was like, you know, the, I'm a I'm a fan of Obama. I think he's been a, a very good president, especially considering what he was up against. Like on balance, you know, not that he's perfect, but on balance, I think he's done a very admirable job, and especially countenanced against the kind of person that Trump is. It's like this is what a dignified, sane, you know, rational wise, uh, guy, you know, or smart guy looks like in the Oval Office. And, you know, it's, it's, the comparison is very stark. Well, for, it is for liberals. Yeah. Well, whatever. Because I'm, conservatives hate Obama. Well, this is exactly <laughs> the point. This is the point that I'm getting to is that when you think about Trump and you try to think about like, oh my God, what happened to this guy that created this type of behavior? Like, how did this happen? And then you think about, well, how did, how did this, not, not only did, how did he happen as a human being? But uh, how did he get to where he is now? How did a major political party nominate somebody like this? And I think one of the things that uh, the Obama presidency has done has brought to the fore all of this racial animus that's been brewing sort of subsurface in the Republican Party for a long time. Yeah. And then Trump finally made it overt. But, you know, the fact that Obama was president was so infuriating to people who have a problem with his race and his you know, uh, Muslim name and all this stuff. And, um, I think he drove them crazy and it brought Absolutely. it out of the party. And like, hopefully it's like a weeding out. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to, to know exactly what the, how it's all going to play out going forward. Like, hopefully this is like a weeding out and like some sort of, uh, expelling of, a of a, uh, infectious agent, but I mean, it also could be like, you know, seeding the field for a future nut who's more disciplined. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I I feel like my instinct is that the moderate conservatives don't like Trump, but he's their option because they hate Hillary. But it's this fringe group that actually really likes him. Um, And they're going to be the ones watching Trump TV. (sighs) Which maybe that's fine. Let them have Trump TV. Somebody else has got to pay for it. I mean, (laughs) Trump is cheap. He's not going to pay for it. Someone else is going to have to pay for it. If he swindles somebody. Build the TV. What do you mean? Like build the wall, build the team. Oh, right. I mean, you know, but he's just, I feel like someone's going to get snookered. Like that's the way he operates. He takes other people's money and, you know, risks it. So this is true, but you know, he has people bankrolling his campaign. So this, I'm sure that they'll line up to make him a TV person. God, we're going to need to sage ourselves after this I conversation. It yeah. took a turn. I know, but I mean, it's, I mean, it is of a piece. No, I, I know it is of a thing. I think with what you do, uh, for your day job. Yeah. Is your book, uh, does it deal with this stuff? I mean, none of it. Oh no. Talk about your book a little bit. Sure. Um, my book is short stories, many of which are flash. Um, there's 27 stories. Many of which are what? Flash. Oh, I thought you said flesh. I was like, ew. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All right. Yes. There will just be folds of flesh (laughs) on every other page. It's going to be very visceral. Um, yeah, a lot of it's flash. It's 27 stories in about 120 pages. Um, and it's, you know, some of it's narrative, some of it's a little more surreal or poetic. Um, and it's fun. I think it's fun. You seem funny. Really? A little bit. Thanks. You got, I mean, is that in your work? You have a, are you a, hum- yeah. you're a humorist? Cause on Twitter you're sort of funny. Really? I feel like. A little bit. A little bit. I, oh, man, Twitter. What? I just like You're on every it a lot. time I tweet, I'm not on it that much. If you compare, like, I, know. I swear to God, I, well, there's all, some people all, who are like, I'm like, what are you doing? How are you on Twitter all day? But 
I think every time I tweet, I hate it. I'm just like, this is awful. Yeah. But I think that's everyone really. You got to create a secondary account. I've been like, cause I have the Brad Listy Twitter. I never tweet from it cause it's like my name. I feel much okay. more empowered tweeting from other people. I'll say anything See, from the other. I feel like you should, it should be the opposite. Oh really? Yeah. Why is it too much? Am I, am I screwing No, I just up? feel like if other people is sort of like a, I don't want to say brand, but you know what I mean? Like it's like a thing you're doing. Yeah. Am I sullying my brand? No, I don't think you're selling your brand. It just seems like you're putting your personal opinions on the brand one versus right. like, do you ever tweet from your personal one? Only if I have like what I feel like is, is a good like quip or something. Interesting. I'm eventually going to, I okay. think you should reverse it. This is just like... my opinion. <laughs> this is just my recommendation if as you're a social media expert. If you're listening to this and you have strong you know, opinions on my brand or on social media or both, please weigh in. You can send me an email at letters at other or tweet at me. Oh my God. Or you could do like a little, um, what do you do at the survey? Yeah, I'll do a should survey. Should I swap? Yeah. Should I swap? Am I sullying my brand? I'm really bad. I feel like I'm really bad at social media. So how do you be, I mean, I think being good at it is gross. Honestly. It's like, you know, if, if you're the better you are at, so, at social media, like maybe the more like dysfunctional you are. I don't know, man. But like I've been having to do now because of like book stuff, like share blurbs or like share whatever. And every time I do it, I'm just like, I hate myself. Yeah. Like I'm, it's, it's not a maybe so far as I hate myself, but it's more like, oh, it just feels like, uh, it just, Gross. I just don't like self-promotion. I don't know if anyone does, but some people are really good at it. Yeah. Some people make it seem really natural or, um, they're just fine with it also. And it's what just, constitutes self-promotion. I mean, sharing news about the publication of your book. I mean, that's good news, right? I know. But like just yesterday I shared a bunch of blurbs I got, like my final blurbs. And even just sharing that, I was like, I feel braggy. You're going to, are you going to share news of this podcast on your social media? Oh yeah. You will. For sure. Okay. Big time. You're not going to feel weird about it. I think I'll actually feel less weird about that because I think something about sharing blurbs is like, look at these nice things people said about me. Right. It's so explicitly like, right. Check out these compliments. Did you have to do it? No, I didn't have to do it, but you what share them. Yeah. No, but it's like, it's part of the thing. Says who? I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Well, it's going to be fine. Meredith, uh, it has been a pleasure uh, talking with you and meeting you in person finally. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed your glass of wine. Stop. Was this a good, was this a good experience for it you? It was delightful. You had a good time. I had a wonderful time. Well, I wish you luck uh, on you know everything that goes along with publishing your debut collection. Thank and you so much. With your, uh, your very noble day job and with whatever comes next creatively. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Meredith Alling. Her debut story collection is called Sing the Song, available from Future Tense Books. You can find Meredith online at MeredithAlling.com. You can find her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Merrimith. Get it? M-E-R-E-M-Y-T-H. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Uh, don't forget this podcast has its own app. Get the app. It's the best way to listen. It's free. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. Just go to your app store, search for Other People with Brad Listy. You'll find the app. It's free. You get the app on your device. The most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. That's how, it's wor that's how it works. You get the most recent 50 for free. And then if you want to uh, access everything... If you want to get at the Deep Archives, more than 435 episodes and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's safe. It's secure. 
it costs as little as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to every single episode available wherever you go at your fingertips, including my conversations with authors like Jonathan Latham, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Susan Orlean, Hilton Owls. I mean, who else? The list goes on. Sam Pink, Ben Laurie, Elisa Gabbert. So do that if you want. It's a great way to support the show. I would appreciate it. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, wrapping up work on this big draft of my, of my novel. I'm almost done. I think I'm going to finish uh, this week, or at least some version is going to be done this week. I can say that with confidence. I don't think the book is done done. I just think that like I've actually finished a draft of this fucking book as of this week. And uh, then uh, it's now got me thinking, like, what am I going to write next? I want to try to do another book as quickly as possible. I don't want there to be a big lull like there has been between my first novel and this novel. I need to get on it. I need to be proactive. We'll see. Uh, so thanks again to Meredith Alling. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for uh, bringing wine, drinking the wine. And thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I'll be back next week with another conversation with another writer. Oh, you know what I should say, too? I should have said this at the top of the show. I'm really trying hard to only interview authors in person. I, I much prefer that. Uh, in terms of sound quality, I think that it's a little bit... It's just a more enjoyable experience for me to actually have a human being sitting here as opposed to being on Skype. Though I will, on occasion, do that if it's a, a, you know, a circumstance that, I've, that I feel it calls for. it. So... I think I've sort of said that before, but that's my policy going forward. So if you're uh, a publicist out there and you're trying to book authors on the show, you know, if you're working for a publishing house or an imprint somewhere, um, you know, the author's got to be coming through Los Angeles on book tour. Send your authors to Los Angeles on book tour. That's the answer. (laughs) 